see you all here today in Advent. We're going to be looking at this passage from Micah, the end of Micah. It's on page 663 in the beat up paperback gray church Bible. Hope you can find a Bible and follow along. And um, today's message, Micah 6 and 7, is about discipline and desire. Love gives both. Love gives discipline and desire. Looking at Micah 6, turns out that we're not the only people, not the only ones with desire. Actually, God has desires too. This Advent, as we think about what we're longing for, we can learn what God is longing for as well. What does God desire? Micah 6 says, not empty rituals, not uh, animal sacrifice or child sacrifice. Micah 6, 8, God declares what is told, what is good, what pleases Him. And what is it that pleases God? What does the Lord desire from us? Do justice, love mercy, and humbly walk with Him. He's like a loving parent who is asking us to do what he does, to love what he loves, and to come and be with him, to draw near to him, to be close to him, and enjoy him. When we choose to live otherwise, it reveals that our desires don't really match his desires. That's where the discipline comes in, because God, like a loving parent, disciplines us those whom he loves, in order to bring our desires into alignment with his desires. After all, he made us. He knows what's best for us. He knows we'll never find joy, we'll never find fulfillment, until our desires come into alignment with his. And we do what he does. We love what he loves. And we draw near to him. That's what he wants in this Advent season. This is a season for reorienting, reorienting our hearts to the Lord. And that's what these last chapters of Micah are so clearly focused on, helping us to do that in just the right time as we're seeking Him. So as we turn to these chapters, before we do, let's actually ask for His help now and pray together. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you speak to us week after week through it. And we're gathered here together to hear from you. So we ask you, Again, speak to us and help us by your Spirit. Help us understand and help us to, to know you better, to love you more, to do what you do, and to draw near to you. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's an overview of what I hope you can see from Micah 6 and 7. We'll be starting with verse 9 of Micah 6. And... Uh, what you'll see at the end of chapter 6, first of all, I hope to show you, is the end of injustice. The end of injustice because God desires that we do what He does. And then at the beginning of chapter 7, I want to show you also the chaos of narcissism because God desires that we love what He loves. And then in chapter 7, verse 7, I want to show you the discipline of desire because God wants us to draw near to Him. So first of all, the end of injustice. Look at Micah 6, 9 to 16. What is it that God desires that we do? Not empty rituals, not animal sacrifices, not child sacrifices. He wants us to do 
justice, just like him. But it's really hard to do justice. Very, very hard so much of the time, especially living where we do, in the federal city with at least three local jurisdictions. I can't tell how many police forces are there in the city. John, do you know? It's like at least a dozen. Um, something like that. It's, it's crazy. There are so many people in charge, but nobody on the hook. And it's really hard in our broken systems to find out how to do justice. And let me just be honest with you, uh, I'm usually a pretty funny guy. I don't have anything funny to say today. We live in a city filled with broken systems. And I have trimmed out about three quarters of a rant out of the sermon. <laughs> Uh, because of all of the broken system. It is really hard to talk with you about doing justice in the midst of such a broken, broken city. I'll just give you a couple of examples very briefly of how things are broken here. Uh, just a couple of months ago, the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development published a scathing report about housing in our city. Hopefully some of you saw it. Our housing and authority, uh, housing authority in the city has catastrophically failed people. Um, those in need of housing on waiting lists can't get in, even though there are many open properties. Those in housing are finding that the properties are so poorly maintained that it's not safe or healthy to live in them. And yet, the same people who are in charge were elected once again to office by a landslide. Another example. Seven years ago, uh, after so many traffic fatalities, Mayor Bowser institutes her Vision Zero campaign to eliminate traffic fatalities and injuries. Where are we seven years later? Things have gotten substantially worse. There are lots of reasons for it. Some of them are hard to address. Some of them would be very easy to address. Those have not been taken. And we elect the same people to office by a landslide. These things are so frustrating. Who's on the hook for these things? Apparently nobody, because they keep getting elected by large margins. And I can say the same thing about the systemic problems found in all, you know, all of the other areas of our life, manufacturing and commerce and agriculture and education and housing and so on. It's little wonder, though still no excuse, that we often fail to do justice as our Heavenly Father does justice. We should oppose injustice wherever we find it. But where do you begin when things are this complicated and chaotic? Where do you even begin? It's easier so often, isn't it, to just go along to get along inside these broken systems. So we learn how to work the broken system, don't we? We work them to our advantage so often, maybe cheating employers out of time that we owe them, maybe cheating workers out of a living wage, maybe uh, the school system is so broken, I'll just move to a different neighborhood and get into a different school district for my kids. Maybe 
leveraging racial inequities somehow to our benefit one way or another, or purchasing food or clothing or other goods that we know have been made under conditions akin to slavery or conditions that are unsustainable. And yet, it's cheaper. And that's why we do it. I'm guilty of so many of these things and many, many more. And um, that's all the rant that we have time for today. <laughs> but I feel it. I feel it. It's so hard to talk with you about injustice because it's, it's just so woven into the way of life that, that we have. I know that God will supply all of my needs. He has done so so many times. And yet, I still so often practice this greedy, zero-sum game kind of thinking that does not prioritize my neighbor's good. It's just me trying to get ahead. In these and so many other ways, we end up doing injustice, which is the opposite of what the Lord would have us do. What does God want for Advent? He wants the end of injustice. That's what he's after. He wants Christians to be part of the solution rather than the problem. He doesn't want us to leverage inequities for personal gain. When we drive such a hard bargain that the other person feels cheated, God is not saying, hey, way to go, thrifty. When we work an unjust system to get ahead, God does not delight in our cleverness. What does God desire? That we do justice just like Him. In a nutshell, that's the message of the end of Micah chapter 6. Let me show you, beginning in verse 9. God condemns Jerusalem's systemic injustices and warns them of severe consequences. And He begins by saying this, The voice of the Lord to the city, the kol Yahweh, the voice of the Lord, keeps showing up. It showed up in the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. It showed up in the time of the Exodus when God's voice rang out with plagues upon Egypt and the universe was decreated to allow God's people to escape. The voice of the Lord keeps showing up at these pivotal moments and announcing God's plan, what God will do, God's judgment against His enemies, God's love for his people. The voice of the Lord here again is interrupting Jerusalem's already scheduled broadcast with an emergency warning system that is going, alert, 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 listen up. Things are not going to stay the same for much longer. Look at verse 11. The economy of Jerusalem has come to depend upon wicked scales and deceitful weights. They used to have weights that were used in commerce. And, uh, there's some evidence that these weights were, were fairly standardized across the Middle East, and the weights were shaped like different animals. So whatever the ounce or the pound or the kilo or what, whatever their weights at the time, they would have a, a pig-shaped weight or a cow-shaped weight or a lion-shaped weight, and those were somewhat standardized so that people would know what they were getting, except a lot of shady merchants would have two sets of weights looking identical. One was heavier, the other was lighter. And they would take out different ones at different times to their advantage. And they would make so much more because of this shady system of weights. 
It was the king's job in every land in those days to make sure the weights were the same within a very small margin. And yet, in so many places, the king stood the most to gain by the system being corrupt. Same thing happening here in Jerusalem in those days. The rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer. God says in verse 12, your rich are full of violence, they speak lies, and their tongues are deceitful in their mouths. And this system, this rich getting richer and poor getting poorer, cannot go on forever. Think about it. Sustained injustice will eventually use up every available resource until there's just a wasteland left, like the Aral Sea. Just a, a muddy mess, no longer useful for anything. Every living thing gets consumed, leaving only death and decay. That's the end of injustice if God doesn't intervene, which explains why God does intervene. See his question in verse 10. Can I forget this any longer? Verse 11, shall I acquit this person? If God forever turns a blind eye to injustice, all hell will break loose everywhere in the world. So in verse 13, the voice of the Lord, Kol Yahweh, announces God's intervention to bring a better end. God will end injustice, and he will do so by striking those in power with a grievous blow, he says. He will make them desolate because of their sins. It already happened up north to Samaria in the north. Uh, it will come soon to the kingdom in the south, Jerusalem. An eastern empire, like what happened in the north, will come and carry them away into exile. And then, verse 14, the dysentery will set in. They will eat but remain hungry. Their storehouses will be plundered. Verse 15, just as the rich have done to the poor, so shall it be done to them. Oil and wine, the fruit of their labors, will be enjoyed by people who didn't work for them. And verse 16, here is God's verdict. Jerusalem has become another Samaria, which would have been shocking for them to hear. It's like, saying that Washington has become a new Moscow, and that our president is a new Stalin. Shocking. Look at verse 16. You have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their houses. So I will make you a desolation in your inhabitants, a whistle or a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. century earlier in the north, Omri and Ahab, they were like the wicked, evil version of David and Solomon in the south. Omri, King Omri, he laid the groundwork for the re-canonization of the north, the paganization of the north. They would turn away from the Lord and turn back to all of these wicked gods. And then King Ahab, his son, came along and he executed the plan. He brought in his um, Canaanite witch queen, Jezebel, and together they did it. They re-canonized the whole land. And because they did, their sustained injustice precipitated Samaria's downfall. That's what brought, brought the whole northern nation down. Of all the atrocities that Ahab and Jezebel committed, one stands out as, as the most notorious, and that is Ahab's seizing of Naboth's vineyard. Maybe you remember this story. 
he wanted his neighbor's property. He wanted his neighbor's vineyard. And so, with Jezebel's help, he concocted this plan to have Naboth murdered. And then he took the vineyard. And the things that he did, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, are exactly the things that are being railed against here in the end of Micah chapter 6. His murder of Naboth is the violence and the deceit that's mentioned in verse 12. That's why Ahab was as notorious then as Stalin might be to us today. And that's the reference in verse 16. The voice of the Lord saying here, remember Omri, remember Ahab, those notoriously wicked kings up north. They're the reason that all of your brothers up there have been carted away in slavery. Well, Little Jerusalem is the only thing left, and Jerusalem's leaders are doing exactly the same thing. Aren't you paying attention? Don't you see the similarities? This same disaster will soon overtake you. Babylon is coming to make Jerusalem a desolation, and that is God's plan to bring an end to injustice. In our day, people are oftentimes horrified by this idea of God intervening, God's wrath coming down against a wicked king, God bringing vengeance against injustice. And what, what people often fail to see is God's unbelievable uh, patience in waiting and giving grace again and again and again in the midst of horrific injustice. That's the story in these Old Testament books. The history of prophetic warnings, God's patience, whenever there was just a little bit of repentance, even in the case of wicked King Ahab, at times his heart, was, his heart softened just a little bit to the Lord, maybe, or maybe he was faking it, but God's patience was absolutely scandalous, even with him. Eventually, God did bring an end to the injustice in the north, and eventually he did in the south, but in both cases it felt long overdue. A day is coming, likewise, when God will bring an end to the injustice in this city. Our city is no different. God hates injustice. His desire is that we do justice. It doesn't matter what religion people are here. It doesn't matter where they're from. North or South, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. God's desire is that we do justice. Everyone in the city. The day is coming when he will lose his patience with our city. He has been patient. He has been scandalously patient with us. So patient that many of our leaders do as they please without giving God a second thought. But it won't always be this way because God's desire is that we do justice as he does justice. So here's the message. All those in power should, should drop everything right now and do what it takes to make things right, even if it costs them their office. Otherwise, when God intervenes, the consequences of inaction will be far worse. Or when God brings an end to injustice, he holds leaders accountable for the injustices that occurred under their watch. And as for the little people, <laughs> um, as we've been learning throughout this series, 
Part of what it means to be a Christian is to be raised up to become a prophet like Jesus. To speak the truth in love like Jesus. And so the, to the degree that you have access and agency, part of your role here is to let our leaders know that the end of injustice will come one way or another, and only a fool would ignore Almighty God. So, have a nice day. Um, God's message in this passage, first of all, is that we do what he does. He's bringing an end to injustice one way or another. His desire is that we would do what he does. Second thing I want to show you, the chaos of narcissism, because God loves, he wants us to love what he loves. So look at chapter 7, verse 1. Nobody likes a self-righteous prophet, by the way. Nobody wants to, that, that guy to come on campus shouting hateful things about God's wrath coming down on everybody else except for him. Uh, that's not Micah at all. Micah is filled with the Spirit. He's been speaking of hope, not, not only long-term hope in the Messiah to come, but he's also been speaking of the hope of salvation for all who turn to the Lord all the way through this book. It's rich with hope. And now we come to the end, and Micah is still hopeful that some might turn and follow the Lord. And yet, um, it's hard. It's hard. And here is where we get to see a little bit of the loneliness of Micah's situation as a prophet in the midst of this big city, inviting people to follow the Lord and not getting any traction. Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7, Micah is speaking personally and poignantly about the chaos of narcissism. Note the shift to his own voice in verse 1. He says, woe is me. And he starts to describe uh, or paint a picture of himself akin to that of, of uh, King David's great-grandmother Ruth when she came as a refugee to Judah. And she was hungry. She had no, no money. And she went to glean in Boaz's field. And as she gleaned, she was looking for the leftovers after the grain had been collected and and she's working her way around the edges, and she's able to find green, and she doesn't go hungry. Well, now Micah is describing his own situation similar to that. He's walking through the orchard of Jerusalem, and he's looking for leftovers. And he's finding no figs. No figs left on the trees. No grapes left on the vines. And it's breaking his heart. Woe is me, he says. Every fig has been picked. All the grapes are gone. And this is his way of picturing life in the capital city after every remaining believer has either died or left or capitulated. That's what Jerusalem had become. Remember that God desires that we do what he does, that we love what he loves, we draw near to him. When we don't, we become what probably St. Augustine who first described this. We become bent. We become curved in on ourselves. Homo incurvatus in say, Humanity curved in on itself. We turn inward. We turn away from God. And left unchecked, our narcissism becomes like a black hole with this uh, gravitational field pulling everyone and everything into me, me, me. 
of narcissism. And if you're trying to live differently, if you're trying not to be bent, if you're trying to live in relationship to Almighty God, you are going to feel it like Micah feels it. You're going to feel the loneliness and the ache. You're probably feeling it if you're unmarried and you're never hooking up. You're probably feeling it if you're married and behind your spouse's back you're still saying nice things. You're probably feeling it if you're committed to biblical ethics and you're working in politics and trying to speak for the Lord in your job on either side of the aisle. It's lonely, isn't it? As a matter of fact, you're probably feeling it if you're trying to work anywhere these days and committed to biblical Lonely. It can be very lonely to follow the Lord in the midst of the chaos of narcissism. Listen to Micah's experience as we read through these verses. There's no one upright left, verse 2. The godly have all perished from the earth. All lie in wait for blood in the Darwinian narcissism of the day. The chaos. Verse 3, their hands are bent on doing evil, especially those in power. The princes, or the officials, and the judges, they're all bought. And even the great one, that is the king. The king, even the king is in curvatus, is bent inward. A black hole sucking everyone in to satisfy his desires. Verse 4, none of them are figs or grapes. At best, they're briars or thorny hedges. So while Jerusalem's watchmen, as Micah describes it, remain on the walls looking out, ready to sound the alarm should any invading armies appear on the horizon, the damage is already being done inside the city where everyone is bent, where everyone has become a black hole of narcissism. The chaos of narcissism is like a cancer eating the people of the city. Verse 5, while everyone is bent, you can't trust your neighbors, you can't trust your friends, you can't even trust the lover in your arms, he says. 4, verse 6, even the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, not one person living under your roof can be trusted captures the weariness, doesn't it, of maintaining a prophetic witness within a society such as ours. A society that views religion as archaic at best, maybe quaint, but probably more often, it's dangerous. Religion is dangerous. Religion is harmful. And into this society, Jesus sends his people as ambassadors of his kingdom. If you're a Christian, your task is nothing short of being unswervingly committed to living in fidelity to the Lord, speaking the truth in love regardless of the consequences. And that's not popular at all. Again, happy Advent. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to live faithfully as a Christian today. If you're endeavoring to do so, then you are probably feeling this way. You're probably feeling like Micah felt. You're probably feeling the prophetic weariness, if not all the time, then 
during your waking hours at least. And if this is you, if you are feeling it, let me, let me offer a couple of words of encouragement. First of all, you're in very good company if you're feeling this prophetic weariness because not only Micah, but also most all of the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets felt this way. And so did Jesus the Messiah. Some 700 years later, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, what did he find? He found a fig tree that had no fruit, and he cursed it. It was a, it was a living parable of what he was experiencing in Jerusalem, just as Micah had done 700 years earlier. A fig tree in the spring, not bearing fruit. Jesus enacts this parable for his disciples and us. A whole nation whose vocation was to bear fruit for God's kingdom was devoid of fruit because of the chaos and narcissism. We heard in today's gospel lesson also John the Baptist railing against the very same things. He's warning everyone who comes out to be baptized in the Jordan. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now, he says, the axe is being laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is coming down, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And God's winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Jesus, John the Baptist, all the prophets, one way or another, say the same thing. Repent of your narcissism before it's too late. If you're feeling the weariness of maintaining a prophetic witness, you're in very good company. Secondly, here's another thing, hopefully a word of encouragement. Um, as much as you may feel alone at work or at school, I hope you feel at home in good company here. I hope you feel encouraged here. I hope you find encouragement here. There are many others here who are endeavoring to remain true to the Lord and experiencing the same weariness. And if you'll find a way to go deeper with a few others, to share what's happening in your life, to know and be known, to love and be loved in community, I think you'll find tremendous encouragement in your vocation as an ambassador of the Lord. A resident might be a good place to start. So God's message for us today from this passage, first of all, God will accomplish the end of injustice one way or another because he desires that we do what he does. God also wants us to see the chaos of narcissism because he desires that we love what he loves. And then finally, last verse, 7-7, seven, seven, God wants us to draw near to him. And so let me show you the discipleship of desire in closing. Chapter 7, verse 7. Micah concludes this lament by comparing himself to Jerusalem's watchmen on the walls back in verse 4 of this chapter. They watch for the enemy. Micah watches for the Lord. And what I find especially interesting, Micah watching for the Lord here, is that in both cases, something is happening while they wait and watch. The watchmen on the walls in verse 4 as they wait and watch outside, Jerusalem is being eaten up within by the chaos of narcissism. Meanwhile, Micah, as he watches for the Lord, as he takes that Advent posture, waiting and watching for the Lord, the Lord is at work in him. 
It's actually the Lord who is doing something, just as, as the chaos of narcissism is, is eating up the people in Jerusalem. Something good is happening in Micah. And I call it the discipleship of desire. You know, in most instances, new believers, whether, whether children or adults, new believers tend to love God more for the gifts that he gives, for the prayers that he answers, uh, more for those things than for who he is. And that's, that's normal. That's pretty natural. It's primarily a love of use rather than a love of relationship. That's a normal place to start, but it's not where God would have us stay. Remember, what God desires is that we do what He does, that we love what He loves, and that we draw near to Him for His sake, not just for the prayers that He answers or the gifts that He gives. And this is the discipleship of desire, and this is happening as we watch and wait for Him. Jesus showed us the way. He says, come on, disciples, come, follow me. It's going to be a long road. Let's be together as we go. Same thing is happening in you as you watch and wait for the Lord. As you watch and wait for Him, Jesus is saying the same thing. He, he, he says, I will be with you. He says, even to the ends of the earth, wherever you go, I will be with you always. And He longs for us to discover that He is with us, even in those darkest moments. It's on work trips, you know, that you really get to know the other people on the team. In the same way, Jesus is with you in your work as an ambassador of His kingdom here. It's the promise of His great commission, um, promise saying, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. If you're feeling lonely representing Jesus, Tell him about it. Tell him about it. Open the Psalms and pour out your heart to him. And then keep reading and praying and listening and let him tell you that he loves you in return. Don't close it up until you heard that from him. And over time, you'll experience this discipleship of desire as your heart bends ever more towards him for his sake, just for the sake of relationship. You are not alone. That's the final message. You are not alone, not even close to being alone. In the daytime, the stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars shine. Here in this great city that doesn't know its right hand from its left, the light of Christ shines even more brightly in the darkness, offering warmth and safety and cold. This is the discipleship of desire, drawing us closer and closer to the Lord. His will is that we would do what He does, that we would love what He loves, and that we would be with Him. That's what He's calling us to accept. Let's pray. So let it be in us, Lord, as you give us courage to speak the truth in love. Let us know Your presence. Let us enjoy the depth of relationship that comes from walking with you. And we pray your mercy and your justice upon our city, 
and your help in the work that you've called us to do here. So we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 